to the Public Safety Innovators Podcast. Connecting you with experts and trendsetters who are leading innovation in law enforcement, private security, and personal protection. And now, your host, Adam Wills. Welcome to episode 30 of the Public Safety Innovators Podcast. Today we are diving back into everyone's favorite topic, drones. We will be talking to someone you probably already know or have at least heard of. Charles Warner is director and founder of Drone Responders, the authoritative resource for public safety organizations who are looking for assistance starting or growing their own drone program. Drone Responders is a nonprofit organization that gives its members access to a plethora of SOPs, training resources, guidance, and other tools to make their drone program a success. Membership is free, and on today's show, Charles is going to tell us a bit about what resources you can expect and what is in the pipeline for drone responders in the near future. Welcome to the Public Safety Innovators Podcast. Today we've got Charles Warner on the show. Charles, my man, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm glad to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Uh, we, we've been trying to connect for a little while, and uh, obviously we've been tr- talking about drones a lot on this show, so it just makes sense to have uh, you from Drone Responders on the show, so I'm happy to have you on. Well, we're glad to share all the th- great things that are happening with drones, and let's roll. Yeah, let's do it. So if you are a public safety agency leader or you're in a public safety agency that is looking to uh, integrate drones into your repertoire of tools, if you will, you might be feeling a little bit overwhelmed by all the things that need to be considered and all the things you need to put in place, the tools you have to look into, all the logistics behind it. And uh, Drone Responders is here to help you with some standard operating procedures and and other resources to get you set up with a proven uh, model and process to go forward with. So Charles, why don't you tell us a little bit more about that and what you guys are doing at Drone Responders? Yeah, so you uh, you mentioned the problem and the problem is that many departments are getting started and they're wondering what's involved with drones. What are the parts and pieces I need to understand? So we put together the resources, the resource center, which is, has over 600 documents in it to actually provide from all these different departments that have already gone ahead of these people who are thinking about it. And we have a, a considerations and guidelines document that really kind of gives you an overview of what you're getting into. Buying the aircraft and flying the aircraft are the two easiest things you're going to do. Then it starts getting difficult because you've got to make sure that you're registered, that you uh, that your pilots, your remote pilots are trained adequately to fly safely because you are a pilot in the national airspace. And then you need to make sure that you have the SOPs uh, that, that will guide the process of what you're going to do. And, and of course, before any of this happens, you really need to meet with your community and you need to have a community outreach program that tells them what you're going to do, what your intentions are, uh, what your policies and procedures, the types of missions you're going to fly and the things you're not going to do. Uh, for example, one of the big things we've got to make sure we do is we respect the privacy of individuals. So we make sure that uh, all of that is covered uh, with our, our citizens because they're the ones that ultimately have to 
uh, accept what we're going to do and understand what we're going to do. So you go right out, right out of the shoot. We have an outreach program that's on that's basically a template that you can put your name on and it'll give you a walkthrough process of how to do this in your community, town hall meetings, some demonstrations, let them get their hands on the drones and then, then go into procedures. But, but the one thing you want to make sure you do is tell them that we are not going to be doing random surveillance. Um, this is about saving lives. It's about improving operational effectiveness and it's about creating some real time situational awareness that often helps us de-escalate situations more often than not. Yeah. You, you've pointed out a couple of really valuable things there, but you know, you just mentioned about how the community outreach is so important because you want the community to understand that you're not, you're not deploying drones for the sole purpose of surveillance. And I feel like that's one of those areas where the, the use of the term drone specifically is really kind of uh, set us up for failure in, in the PR part of the part of things. Um, we actually talked about that on a previous episode and I don't remember which episode that was or who, who I talked about that with, but we had spoken very briefly about how there was this push for a period of time to try and get the industry to refer to them as a UAS, but uh, it just didn't catch on and everybody just call, kept calling them drones. And so now here we are stuck with the term. And I don't think that, uh, well, it, I, it creates some hurdles, I think, from a public uh, uh, perspective standpoint. I think it, I think it did change dramatically after we saw the use of drones on aircraft systems to support hurricane responses. When we started seeing this damage assessments and providing information that people could see, or even now when you see the wildfires and we're able to take the imagery and put it on a forward-facing public map, that those have been evacuated can come in and actually see what their neighborhoods look like, look good or bad. You need to know what your situation is. And that kind of information uh, becomes invaluable to those people, as well as the insurance companies, that if they can see it more quickly, they know they've got to respond and start trying to help uh, mitigate the the person's losses and and so the, the powerful nature of the positive information that was coming out of drones has helped change drones not be thought of so so negatively. So let's talk a little bit more about the resource center uh, that you mentioned. That's part of drone responders. Is that is that a publicly accessible repository or is that purely a private repository for members only? What is what does that look like? Well, it's a repository for members only. However, anyone okay. can be a member and membership okay. is free. So you, you don't have any cost to get in there. And what we've seen, uh, what's been really powerful is that, you know, we're getting contacts from some of the private industries. We're getting contacts from some of the uh, municipal cities that uh, beyond public safety that are saying, look, we are really appreciative of the information that you've made available because there's so many nuggets in here that help us look at our program more effectively. So, uh, yeah, it's open for everyone. And because of that, that's why we have so much information that's coming in. We've got SOPs, policy manuals, checklists, task books. And, and every time something new comes out, uh, best practices, we, we plug it in or we let people know. For example, going through the certificate of authorization process called a COA is, is really designed for public safety, public aircraft operation. But it's not always as easy as we would like it to be. So we just put out a 55-page COA guidance document working with the FAA. That we've screen captured every screenshot going through the application process, what's called CAPS. And 
now people have a guide to walk them through the areas and there's some things that may be not as clear what to fill out and it guides you through that process. That's what Drum Responders is about, helping you understand the process and give you the information to get through it more quickly and easily. Okay. That's a pretty invaluable resource then for sure. So how how is how is this idea born exactly to start drone responders? Well, it, it as I mentioned to you offline that I was involved in technology throughout my career. So I had been working on thermal imaging, interoperability, communications, broadband, GIS, and so on. As I was retiring, drones were starting to come into the scene 2014, 2015. And so my next natural transition was, well, let's see what these drones can do. And I got one drone at first and and it didn't really impress me much. It wasn't easy to control. The, the connectivity wasn't reliable. So I kind of put it off for the next year. And then I started calling departments around the country. And I started asking when I read stories, um, hey, I saw your story about your drone. You're, you're using it to, to uh, do shoreline patrol for sharks or you're using it for a hazmat incident. And I, I would call these agencies and I would say, hey, listen, I'm calling about what I read in the paper. And they said their first remark was, you're not with the FAA, are you? Which meant they were not flying uh, appropriately. Right. Also, I'll put it they that were way, following the rules. So I started, as I was going, I started educating people that I was talking on the phone. And so what happened for me is I became a, a an unmanned aircraft system subject matter expert really by accident. And, and so I was learning from all these people that were out doing things. Some that started off, you know, jumped out of the chute a little bit sooner than they should have without all the information, but doing great things and having successes. It was okay because the FAA was okay with that. They were saying, hey, look, we know you didn't understand. Here's let's help us guide you. But what I started doing then is putting a packet together and sending out to the department saying, here's this. Because one department I called said, oh, we're about to, to launch eight grants to buy drones for departments across the region. And they had no idea what they were supposed to be doing. So we were able to help with that. And then um, because of the work I'd been doing, I, I wrote a couple articles. Um, I'm a contributing editor for Files Magazine. And so I got contacted by the National Fire Protection Association and said, hey, listen, with all the different things you've been working on at the local, state, national level, you're kind of involved in the networking. And you know this thing about drones. How about heading up our NFPA 2400 Technical Committee on Unmanned Aircraft Systems, which was setting one of the first standards out there of what a program should include. Uh, so we all came together. And while there, we all kind of discussed, you know, we need to do something to help other people. We need to do share the information that we have so that other people can find it easily and more quickly. And so what first happened was the development of the National Council on Public Safety UAS. And that was designed to be a kind of a community of like minds of people. And because of my affiliations, I was able to bring 30 national organizations together in two weeks to create kind of this advisory group to start sharing information. Well, with 30 national organizations, that's the good news, but uh, the bad news is it's 30 national organizations. So trying to get everybody on the same uh, same page became somewhat problematic. It was like trying to herd cats. And we couldn't yeah, enter into official agreements with, with other organizations or with corporate patrons. We couldn't take money because we weren't an official entity. So in 2019, uh, <clears throat> Chris Todd with the Airborne International Response Team, which is a 501c3 pro nonprofit in Miami, uh, reached out to me and said, hey, why don't you bring your program under ERT and let's call it Drone Responders. And so we did. And um, that was April of 2019. And as of this past week, we just exceeded uh, 3,800 members. And we're seeing about 100 new members on average per week. Uh, and we have participation oh, wow. in 48 countries as of today. So it, 
and, and I've seen countries on here that I've never heard of before. So it's been very interesting. And now our website, which has the resource center on it and some other things, we're seeing 1,400 visitors per week to the website. Uh, and I, and I, oh, I get incredible. a re- I, I can see on my I can see on my phone live as people come into the website. And in any given hour, there's probably no less than eight people on the website at any given time that I take a look. So it's kind of rewarding to see that level of cooperation, interest, uh, and participation. Yeah, that's incredible. So, I, I mean, I'm just thinking through the logistics of how challenging that must be to provide all those resources, because, I mean, you're talking about not just law enforcement or just fire. You're talking public safety in general. So you're including any public safety type organization under that umbrella. And I would, I would imagine based upon the way you've been talking and some of the examples you've given, that would probably even, you know, span out to things like uh, potentially division of wildlife type resources and, you know, that sort of thing. And, but beyond that, you know, you've got, you've got a multitude of use cases under each one of those public safety entities. And you, you, you mentioned private, you know, private entities coming in and, and taking advantage of your resources. Uh, and I didn't realize that you actually were offering this, that drone responders was multinational. So now you're adding all these countries in. How are you guys able to keep up with the demand for resources? Because I imagine there's different laws, obviously, from state to state to state, certainly by country. The uses are, are are vastly different. So the way a law enforcement agency uses a drone, for example, for a search and rescue mission would be potentially different than the way a actual search and rescue organization that's dedicated to that would use it. So, I mean, th- you're, we're talking multitudes of, of resources that you guys are having to put together here. How do you guys keep up with that and uh, put all that together? Well, so largely it's, uh, it's because of people actually putting the resources in. I don't have to do everything. I mean, there are people who are loading up files of their own SOPs and procedures. Uh, and, and you're right. We did a study in the spring of 2020 because we wanted to find out just what missions are people flying in public safety. And we identified more than 17 use cases in public safety now. So yeah, it goes across the board. It's, it's firefighting. It's structural firefighting. It's wild firefighting. And there's a couple of different aspects of that. There's, there's flying for like wildfires to do pre-fire analytics. What's the fuel load look like using some of the drones? Then it's monitoring the fire and locating where it is and determining the best asset resource deployments. Uh, and then it's after the fire looking for hot spots. So you have you might have four use cases within that single wildfire setting. And then the same thing with, with structural fires. You're looking at the, the building overall. You're looking at the structure, looking for thermal image signatures to see what the heat signature looks like. Or is there an integrity issue? Is there a fire someplace else? Where the firefighters located at night, you can see all of them because they're moving around with thermal imagery. You can identify them as well. Floods, swift water rescues. We've seen now at London Fire Brigade did something fantastic. They've got a guy going down to swift water and there's a drone flying right over him and just flying the same speed the guy is going down the river and drops a flotation device right in his hands. Um, oh, you know, awesome. we're seeing uh, beach patrols now putting drones on their lifeguard stands. Uh, and what they'll typically do is the one that's closest, the rescuer closest, will take off and do what they normally do just so that they've got somebody on the way. The one, the next station over launches the drone. Well, you can guess which one gets there first. And yeah. the good news is that person gets there with the device, drops the flotation device in the water, person's out of trouble, which now changes that whole rescuer situation. Because if you've ever seen somebody who's drowning, they're not a good person to be around trying to get them out of the water because they're going to grab you and yeah. pull you under. So it's a very right. panicky situation. So it changes all that. 
Yeah, I feel like, um, I mean, my initial reaction when you said 17 use cases, I was a little surprised at that number and not because I felt like it was high. I actually feel like that's, I mean, there's got to be, I mean, I feel like you just kind of rambled off almost 17 right there. Um, there's, there's a lot of use well, cases. Well, let me say that you're right. I mean, 17 use cases are some broad categories. I mentioned in the wildfires, sure. four different aspects. So take that 17 right. and now break it down into more numbers. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned people uploading some of these SOPs to the system. So this is more of a file share opportunity. So people are sharing their stuff back and forth versus, or is Drone Responder also as an organization putting together its own SOPs and policies to put out? Maybe it's a combination of the two or what does that look like? Yeah, it's a combination of the two. So we also work with different okay. people and we encourage people to create some papers, some white papers on some things. So we take that and we develop it. We have working groups in place now. We have a major cities working group. Uh, we have, I don't know if you've heard of drones as a first responder out of Chula Vista or not, but they launch a drone. Oh, we've talked about it extensively from, on the show. <laughs> yeah, so so we've created a nationwide drone, drone as a first responder working group now under Captain Redmond yeah. out in Chula Vista. So we can help other departments. So we, what we do is we take these successes and we try to amplify those successes by what they've learned. And then we also work collectively with our stakeholders to identify what are the, the important things we need to work on. So this past year, the number one thing was to create the tactical beyond visual on site waiver. And that was to allow us in dangerous situations like an active shooter or a hazmat is you not, you might not be able to have the remote pilot within visual line of sight of the aircraft. They might need to be around a building so that they're literally not in the line of fire. And we work with the FAA to define that. So for a little bit more than a quarter of a mile, we can actually do that beyond visual line of sight with certain parameters. So in a dangerous mission, within 50 feet of the building or the highest obstacle, because that's non-navigable airspace. You're not going to have a, a helicopter or an airplane flying in that. And then, and then stopping that process as soon as we can, bring it back into visual on site. But that was, that was coming together to find that sweet spot between the FAA and safety and us in the, in the issues and the, uh, the risks that we're in. And one of the, one of the funny things was is that the FAA is, is responsible not only for the airspace, but they're also, they're also responsible for the risk on the ground. When things are flying, they look at what does that mean for the dangers? And, and what was it was kind of interesting to see happen is when they realized that we control the perimeter of those incidents, that kind of changed the dynamic because we control the ground risk. And then they could see where our flights were now controlled by by a scene that we're we're managing. So that that was where we I think we really made the change to get that done. And now we have an ongoing relationship. We provide an FAA webinar uh, the, the second Wednesday of every month. Uh, at 4 p.m. Eastern time free. And it's 50 minutes of content from the FAA and 40 minutes of uh, questions and answers. So we typically have had between 60 and 90 questions and we answer them unfiltered. We go through every single one of them and we either get it answered online or we respond back and we'll send something out later. And those webinars are recorded to watch later. So again, it's one of those resources we're trying to bring forward so that people can get the answers directly from the FAA and they're great to have it. So it's, it's basically a conversation on public safety UAS with the FAA's Michael Shea and whoever he brings from the FAA to, to tell us about. Okay. So you mentioned uh, kind of early on when we first started here that uh, that picking the drone that you would use is, is really the easy part. And it's after that, that it gets complicated. And that kind of put it in perspective, I think for me, because I mean, there's just so many options out there for drones that that seems like a challenge in and of itself. Well, let me correct myself. 
Okay. Buying a drone, buying a drone is the easiest thing to do. Buying the right drone is a different story. Uh-huh. Because one of the things that we're going to tell people when you go through the consideration guidelines is to sit down and look at it from your department uh, and look at it from other what others have done. Because now you've got a broader you got a broader look at what's happened and what's how they're being used where you didn't have that before. So look at those things and determine with your department what types of missions are you likely to fly. What's the most probable type situations where you're going to get the most benefit from the drones? Because what's happened is in the past, people will buy a drone and they will start with a very small set of missions that they're going to fly. Well, what we've learned is if they're the only public safety agency flying in their area, they end up getting asked to fly everybody's missions. So Mm -hmm. if you're a fire department, you might be asked to fly law enforcement missions. If you're law enforcement, you're seeing fire department ask you to fly their missions. And and so that that changes the dynamic. So now the original aircraft that you bought and the payload that you bought is not big enough. It doesn't have the right payloads. And so now you have to buy more aircraft, bigger aircraft, different payloads. And so it starts adding up. And then we get into the whole point of when you're buying it, you have to understand that that aircraft and the payload is the first part of it. Now you've got the, the other logistical support equipment like batteries. You've got to have enough batteries that you can change interchangeably and the chargers that go with it because you've got a 30 or 40 minute window of flying with these small and aircraft systems. So, and then you've got to think about when you get to the scene, how are you logistically supporting that? You've got to have people that are on the ground that are helping support the setup because you've got the pilot who's going to be flying, a visual observer who's going to be watching. And then you're going to be having somebody do the batteries. And then you're going to look at how do we get the streaming set up? So we can do streaming video because that's one of the big things now is being able to see it real time and understand what it is that I'm dealing with. So and then, then it, you know, when it gets into it, you've got flight logs, you've got maintenance, you've got training. All that comes in this that you've got to take care of in an unmanned aircraft system program. And so you guys provide some some guidance then in that and in, in how to pick a drone. And so you have do you have some sort of an assessment that says all right, if I, you know, check off the box and say, I want to fly these kinds of missions, you know, these are the best options for my situation. No, because it really, it really varies on uh, the missions, the payload and the budget. So it, it can't, you can't really say one or the other, because if you've got a limited budget, you're trying to figure out which one is the best to fit the variety of missions that I'm looking at. And that budget means not only the aircraft, but the batteries and the training and all the stuff that goes with it. Sure. So do you guys, as part of your team there at Drone Responders, then do you actually go out and, and test these uh, these different drones and um, try to understand their capability and where their strengths and weaknesses are so that you can best advise on, on those use cases? Well, we have uh, Garrett Brill as our chief pilot. He's down in Texas. And so he'll take... Uh, the different types of aircraft come out and he'll test it based on what they've said they can do. And then he'll test it on some things beyond what they've said it will do to see just what it can do if it's, if it's kind of stretched beyond its normal limits. So he, he has a great deal of fun, uh, f- you know, figuring out what those things do. But uh, then those things go out in videos and information to people. And then uh, Garrett also answers questions to people that they have about different types of aircraft uh, and so on. Okay. Awesome. Ever find yourself responding to the same questions, giving the same advice, 
or teaching the same concepts over and over again for clients or potential customers, you can continue to do the same thing that everyone else is doing, typing out the same information until you're blue in the face, or instead create your own vault of knowledge that can save you precious time and brain energy. At the simplest level, you can save yourself a bunch of time by just using Gmail's built-in templates feature to save your most common responses and insert them into a reply with a single click. But if you really want to get next level, consider using video. Did you know that people retain 80% of what they see and only 20% of what they read? Have you ever labored over the most well-crafted email only to get a response back that makes you think, did they even read what I sent? Tools like Loom or Dub, which is what I use personally, make it really simple to create a library of videos that you can share by simply pasting a link into an email, direct message, social media post, or even upload it to YouTube. So next time you find yourself repeating something, stop, create a quick video, send it, and save it to your library for the next time somebody asks you the same thing. Check out every episode of The Marketing Minute at psi.chat forward slash marketing minute. How many people do you have on your, your organization? You've got people from lots of different backgrounds, uh, that, that are bringing, that are bringing their skill set, their experience to the table to, to help br- put this information together for public safety agencies. So officially within drone responders, there are two of us. Okay. But the way we operate is we operate with the volunteer participation of the people across the country. So it can be any number of those people. Like we'll have members of departments that'll be chairs of working groups. Uh, the working groups are all made up of people that, that come in and express the interest to be there. So there's really, there's no money going out to pay anybody. I don't receive any salary. I do this because this is a passion of mine with my retirement and some other opportunities that I have, I have the ability to afford to, to support this operation. And that's what I do. So <clears throat> we don't have any salaried employees and all the money goes to support uh, the website, the podcast, the, the, the webinars, all those things and the materials that we put up. So we're probably one of the most efficient uh, nonprofit organizations that you're going to be working with. Awesome. So what's, uh, what's next in store for you guys? You have any future plans or anything coming up that you're working on that you want to share with everybody? You know, the, the person that I mentioned with you, Chris Todd, that was uh, kind of offered the invitation to be under the airborne National response team would say, could you please not ask Charles that? Um, because <laughs> I end up uh, continuing to go forward with different initiatives and, and I, I, I continue to see these opportunities. And I'm like you, you see this thing and you start working on it, you start banging you know, on, on the doors and stuff. And, and so, yeah, we, we have a couple things that are going on. One, uh, we're working with uh, NASA Ames. Uh, we have a partnership with them and Esri to create a nationwide public safety uh, UAS program database so that we're actually going to go out and capture all the programs in the United States, uh, find out information about those, uh, those programs, and then map it so that you can see those, uh, those resources around the country who's near you, um, but then we're also going to take it where we're part of our survey is asking, are you willing to be deployable? And if you are, to what distance? And then we're going to take that information and our plans are to import that into the FEMA IRIS database, which will then provide the information accessible mm-hmm. to them 
to see what resources are in a given area. Yeah. That should there be a hurricane or a tornado or whatever, they can make quick contact with those people. And then with Esri, we're working to map that, but also to create a workflow of how do you do what was done in the wildfires out in California to integrate the imagery into the GIS world so that you can actually provide information. Because w- what we've seen is in a wildfire that's devastating that we've seen like in California or a really bad hurricane in Florida, when it comes through, it destroys every geographic reference. So you really need to plot it on some kind of GIS referencing or, or layers so that you can actually see what areas have been destroyed. Otherwise, it just looks like a huge mass of destruction. Uh, so we're working on that yeah. workflow. Uh, and then there's a good chance that we look like phase two of that will be actually doing a development of a, uh, a global uh, database so that we can do that. But then what this, this whole network is designed to do is then to be able to share information with and between all the people in the network and their individual programs, as well as to capture more best practices of things that they've done and learned uh, through their processes so we can share it with other departments. Because what we've seen is that the, the best way that we can advance the use of public safety UAS is by providing the successes from other departments and their processes, their policies, their procedures. And it's just like with the Drone as a First Responder Program. We're using that as a model from Chula Vista to share with all the other states that want, or, or the localities that want to do that similar program. So that's that's kind of what we do is we pick up on where these successes are and we grab them in, bring them in an initiative or create a program and then and make it so that others can learn from it. Right now we have, I think, over 100 localities interested in Drone as a First Responder Program. So we had to pare that down to 22 agencies that are really closer on the edge of going forward so that we can actually focus it uh, more specifically. And then we'll bring the larger group in once we've kind of refined what those resources and guidelines look like. Nice. That's awesome. That's a really important resource. It's a big undertaking. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm not in your shoes having to push forward with that initiative, but, um, that is, that is an excellent undertaking. It's important to, to have everybody coordinated in, uh, the deployment of those resources. And I think that's one of the big challenges that we face, especially here in the United States, because we have so many law enforcement agencies and, and I think it's, uh, it's, well, it's well over half of the country's law enforcement agencies have less than 20 sworn personnel. And so, I mean, you've got tons of law enforcement agencies all over the place and nobody really does the the best job <laughs> at, at articulating and sharing with each other what resources they have at, at their disposal to be able to utilize and you know you mentioned the the FEMA system and that has uh, certainly come in handy in, in a number of situations and we've utilized it a, a time or two w- when necessary and so drones are becoming such a integral part of public safety. I mean, they're, they're being deployed all over the country for all sorts of different use cases that it, it truly is a big and significant part of the future of public safety. And so, uh, you know, it's good that you have the, the foresight to bring that together and be able to collaborate with everyone to uh, create that database and that resource so that uh, it's, it's, you know, all in one place where everybody can access it. Yeah, and and then the other thing we're working on, we're working with ASTM International, which is a standards development organization, to develop some minimum public safety requirements training for remote pilots so that we have a standardized curriculum. We're already an official ASTM auditor, so we can audit training programs to determine if you're actually ASTM compliant to meet those standards. 
what we're working on developing more. So we're working with six departments to create some overlays. And from those overlays, we find out what are the things that automatically fall out that everybody's doing. So that becomes the, the right off the bat, the minimum. And then we work on looking at the others about whether people are doing training programs and get them having discussions to say, what should we include in this minimum training standard? Because what's really necessary is that we have lots of people that train. Uh, they can be private companies. They can be the departments themselves. And when you have a private company come in, you don't really know what that means. It means what what are we doing yeah. uh, as far as training? What does it mean that you're training public safety? Now we'll ha- we have a standard. At least they come in to give us the basis that we know we're meeting those those minimum requirements. Awesome, excellent. Well, is there anything anything else you had on your mind, uh, Charles, that you wanted to chat about today on the show that we haven't touched on already? No, I, I think the the big thing is as you. You asked early on, you know, who can join drone responders? And really, anybody can join drone responders. You can be a student. You can be somebody as the professor. You can be public safety responder. You can be somebody in industry. You can be uh, uh, in government, uh, non-public safety. It doesn't matter. If if you're looking for information to, to understand what the public safety drone environment looks like, drone responders is the place to go. And it's open for anybody. It's free of charge. Uh, we, we continue as long as we have patrons that support us. We're going to make sure that all this information is available as quickly as possible. Uh, and we'll continue to do working groups. Um, the other thing I failed to mention is we also have agreements with AUVSI, which is the largest unmanned systems association in the world to do co-located events with them. So we do a public, we do a global public safety summit at their exponential conference. So we provide the public safety piece of that conference. And then we do the same thing for Commercial UAV Expo in Las Vegas. So we create the National Public Safety UAS Summit out there, and we do the same thing. And part of what we do in those conferences is we actually take time to ask the stakeholders, what are your priority needs? What are you looking for? What do you want us to work on this next year? And and I think that in our in our first year, what was really interesting is we saw standardized training was number one. Uh, a tactical beyond visual site waiver was two, and the community outreach program was three. And we've kind of hit all three of those. So by hearing what they're looking for, we're trying to fulfill those needs. And then the other part that we try to do is uh, we try to, to bring the needs of public safety in a way collectively now to the to industry to say, these are some of the things that we're looking for. And we'd like for you to guys to work on priority. We'd like to see this. And then, uh, you know, as much as we can, and if you look at the world, according to Charles, I want to make sure that we have drones that have payload attachments that are interchangeable regardless of the type of drone that you're flying. So that it doesn't mean that you're, if you get one drone, you can only use these payloads. So we're hoping down the road that there will be some kind of mm-hmm. interoperable interface that will make these things interchangeable. But that's, that's us having a discussion with industry now because we now have collective voices of being able to say that as to one or two of us at a time, um, they pay more attention. So kind of like Molly for drones. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and it's, it also helps with the FAA. You know, when you have a collective group of voices and you're asking for a tactical beyond visual on site waiver, when there's more of us that start coming and, and many of them that carry guns, uh, they tend to start changing a little bit of their thought process. So, uh, you know, we, we do what's necessary to be persuasive. And, and, I, and I will mention, when we talked about the outreach program, I just want to say this. We uh-huh. make sure that when we do outreach programs, we advise people, reach out and talk to your local ACLU right off the bat. Just talk with them, understand their concerns and needs. You're going to be able to, to change some of your policies and procedures to match up with what they're looking for. Not all of them, but there's a great deal of respect that comes from doing that. Yeah, absolutely. 
that's that's good advice. So, I mean, as long as you're uh, in the mode of giving advice here, Charles, let's just kind of throw out a scenario. Let's say, you know, I'm a law enforcement agency administrator and I don't have I don't have a drone program right now. And uh, maybe maybe none of my neighboring jurisdictions have one either. And, and I'm thinking about uh, deploying a drone program of some sort. And I'm just kind of putting things together, doing my research, trying to identify where to go from here. What do you recommend is the first step I take? And what is the biggest uh, mistake, if you will, that you see most uh, agency administrators make that you can advise them to maybe avoid that pain right here on the show? So the first thing would be join drone responders, um, then go into the resource center. Good answer, and the first the folder that you will come to is starting a program. Awesome. And that, pro- that folder will open up into subfolders into almost every phase of things that you need to look at. And the first thing in the first folder you'll look at is, is the guidelines and considerations. What it can, it gives you an overview of what others have learned going through the process. Uh, and it walks you through the things that you'll need to address in this program to make it successful. And then there are numerous different guidelines in there and documents from other publications, law enforcement, non-law enforcement, and others that even go into even more detail. So the resources are there are, are vast, but they will they will very quickly get you into a place where you don't have to go look anywhere else because everything that's needed is close by. And then one thing I forgot to mention is that um, there is the ability to use what's called an actively tethered drone. And I want to highlight that very different because an actively tethered drone can be launched from a vehicle or portable and it's on a tether. So it has continuous power, which means you don't change batteries and it, and it goes up and Pierce fire apparatus manufacturing is actually implemented what they call their situation awareness system. And they use a photokite drone. And what they do is they put that drone up. And then as soon as they get there, they push one button, the drone's up. It's giving them both visual optics and thermal. And they can switch back and forth between the two. And it does not require a remote pilot. And it does not require a certificate of authorization. So it means you can buy it and you can fly it. And then you don't you don't have to train people and maintain that. Backing up now to the, the whole poss- possibility. When you're going into this, mm-hmm. one thing to consider is a multidiscipline team. York County, Virginia is one of the best examples. Their fire and life safety department and their York County, York Pocosin Sheriff's Office combined the team. When we have a major event, whether it's fire or law enforcement, we really put all of our people into those situations. We don't have the ability to, to pull people off and say, we want you to do something else like now fly a drone as a collateral duty. So in their situation, when it's a law enforcement event, the fire pilots fly. When it's a fire event, the law enforcement pilots fly. And what that's also done is it's created this great cohesion between their two departments of better understanding how they operate and being able to support each other. The other thing that's I would really suggest good idea. Is, is consider a regional team. Consider working and talking. If the others don't have it, talk to them and say, hey, how would you like to do this? We can split the price of the, the aircraft. We can, we can share the load of remote pilots and the training and all the stuff that goes with it. And that we can also, because we're regional, we could buy different types of aircraft to give us more specialization capabilities by sharing that burden of cost. To your question of what's the biggest mistake that's been made is buying the biggest, baddest unmanned aircraft system that you can buy. Because most of those people that bought the biggest and baddest never flew them. 
Uh, and the reason for that is because you need to fly something that is easy to train on, relatively easy to operate, that can maneuver the way that you want it to, that's not, you know, too over verbose that's going to scare people. Um, but that's one of the big things that we've seen is don't, don't buy the biggest and baddest to start. Start small. Do the whole crawl, walk, run thing. That's the LA City Fires uh, motto is let's learn, uh, let's crawl, let's walk, let's run. And they've continued built their program up to where it's got multi, multi facets to it. That's so, some excellent advice. I, I want to go back to the, the tethered drone you were talking about. Cause that's the first time I've ever heard of that. I didn't know that that even existed. I, I imagine I mean, the first thought that crossed my mind is somebody flying a tethered drone uh, and and then there is the thought of power lines. I mean, I imagine you've got to be pretty careful about those sort of um, obstacles if you're flying a tethered drone. Yeah, well, in, in the fire service, it's very similar to us if we're, if we're using an aerial ladder, uh, those types of devices. We have to look out for sure. the overhead obstructions and stuff. So the same thing is taught in the training of that is when you arrive at the scene, you need to make sure you take assessments. And the person who's going to launch the drone has to make sure there's clearance that goes in with the training. But imagine now you arrive at a fire scene. and In most cases, your apparatus is fairly close enough that if you put up a drone 150 feet, you're going to get a pretty good situational awareness to see things that you can't see from the ground. And, and, I, and I will tell you in my presentations I'll make to people, I'll say, uh, would you ever make a critical command decision with your eyes closed? And my answer is when they see all the use cases I've gone through and I show them, the hazards that exist that you can't see from the ground means you're doing just that. You're making decisions without yeah. knowing hazards that exist that could be known. Yeah. Excellent point. All right. So why don't you let everybody know how can they sign up to be a member of drone responders? Where do they need to go? What do they need to do? What kind of information do they need to give you? Yeah. So they'll go to droneresponders.org. Uh, they'll hit the join button and it'll take them about 30 seconds, their name, their affiliation. Um, and basically that's it. It's, it's, less than 30 seconds to fill out. And then you have access to all the resources that drum responders has to offer. Excellent. And the podcast, what is, what is the podcast? Where do we find that? Is there a website for that? It's on the website that... as well. Okay. Yeah, we do. We do one or two a month, depending on what's happening. And uh, you go to, again, the, all this is on the, the website. You go down and see podcasts. You'll see things like FDNY. You'll see one with two of our women, uh, our prominent women that are doing flying uh, to talk about women in public safety. That was our first one this year. Uh, we've had um, LA city fire on, we've had uh, Southern Manatee, Florida fire rescue. So a lot of interesting stories out there. Uh, Romeo Dersher, who's probably the, the biggest name out there for the six years working with DJI, who helped probably be uh, the biggest spreader of uh, the, the, the drone gospel, if you will, uh, that he, uh, he helped to, it, to really train a lot of new people and, and do that. And uh, we have another one that's getting ready to come out with Romeo is his new job with Alterion. And what's interesting with Alterion is they're looking at creating, how do you create this interfacing stuff that I was talking about? Uh, so that um, it's changing the dynamics of drones and public safety. So we're looking forward to see just what that looks like. Yeah. Okay, cool. And how about, oh, you mentioned earlier, the FAA webinars you do, how, how would one go and sign up for one of those to register? Um, do you have some place to put uh, something up with your podcast? Yeah, I can put that on the show notes page. So if you want to just send that to me and, and everybody, I'll, I'll put that on the show notes page 
uh, for this episode. You can find that there. How else can people connect with you, Charles? Uh, they can send me an email at charles at droneresponders.org. Uh, I get about 200 emails a day, so give me a day or two to respond back to you. Um, but uh, I answer all the emails, and some of that is pairing somebody up with another department uh, that can answer questions that I might not be able to. Uh, but uh, we're always there to help, and I will send that link to you at the show notes, and you can actually register for all the future webinars at the same time so you can get the notices when they're coming out and then where you can access them once they're recorded all right anybody uh everybody listening you can go to psi.chat forward slash zero three zero for episode 30 uh congratulations charles and thank you for being guest on episode 30 by the way so uh i love those big round numbers it's pretty awesome we're on episode 30 and that's exciting to me but uh anyway so go to psi.chat forward slash zero three zero to get all the show notes uh and links for this episode and everything you need in order to connect with drone responders and charles warner uh charles do you have a closing thought for us before we sign off I think that we've only begun to see the tip of the iceberg of what drones are going to offer to public safety and to our communities in general. I mean, we're starting to see now the whole thing of vaccine delivery. I, I joke in my backyard, I have one of those you know, concrete basketball courts that I've built for my kids. Well, I'm thinking now I'm just going outside and painting a great big A on it so Amazon can know where to, to put my yeah. deliveries from the drone. Uh, but I, I think we're going to see so much more out of it of saving lives and property uh, with drones uh, that again, it's going to be amazing to see what comes next. And I'm excited as to how that all plays out. Yeah, I agree. I think there's big things coming and the drone industry in general is going to change a lot. Well, thanks for being on the show, Charles. I really appreciate it. Uh, great chat. That was great to be here. Thank you again for the opportunity. All right. Hey, thanks for sticking around till the end of the show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review at psi.chat forward slash review. I would love to hear your feedback and it will also help other public safety innovators like yourself find the show. Be sure to check out the show notes for this episode. Just go to psi.chat, click on episodes and search this episode number and you'll find all the links, descriptions and resources we talked about. And if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe and you'll be notified when the next episode is live. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll catch you guys on the next episode.